Welcome to People of Hope, a conversation with the pastoral staff of Ignatius House Jesuit Retreat Center in Atlanta, Georgia. This month we have a shift in our normal format and have invited a member of our Atlanta Catholic community into our conversation to discuss the spirituality of children. Anne Garrido is an Associate Professor of Homiletics and Director of Spiritual Formation for the Aquinas Institute of Theology in St. Louis. Over the past two decades, she has taught a range of courses in pastoral theology, homiletics, and catechetics. Important for our discussion, Anne is a formation leader with the U.S. National Association of Catechesis of the Good Shepherd. She's the author of 10 books, her most recent being Preaching with Children. Anne resides with her husband here in Atlanta. Well, Anne, thanks for spending time um, with me to have a conversation about about Easter and about children. So happy Easter to you. Thank you for inviting me. This is great. Yeah. I, I wanted to talk about this not only because we are in the Easter season now, but partly because I have two small children whom you know, and I as a parent have struggled to really figure out how to explain well the death and resurrection of Christ to my children, especially my five-year-old. And we have children's Bible and, and so on. But, you know, I realize it's a strange story. It's an unusual story. And so though my, my five-year-old daughter is, you know, generally has an idea of what death means, the idea that it can be somehow undone or, um, you know, is, is kind of unusual. So I'm just kind of curious to start, like, just to hear your approach, your thoughts on that. And maybe you encountered that when, when your son was, uh, was a little one. Yes. Well, first off, I don't think you're unusual at all. I think that's a real normal challenge to be faced with as a parent or as a grandparent. Um, anyone who's a teacher, anybody who's working with children. My own learning on this topic has been by working within the movement called Catholic Good Shepherd, which is a Montessori-based religious formation experience where we began, where the founders of the movement started working with children at a very, very young age. So for the littlest ones, for children before the age of four, what we've discovered is we just simply proclaim in a very simple way, Christ has died, Christ has risen. But we don't give a lot of explanation for that. And children before the youngest, before the age of four, they don't even really seem to have a lot of questions in there. As you indicated with your daughter, I think the questions begin to arise and you're like, why are you choosing the age of four? Four seems to be developmentally when children first have an awareness of death and first begin to ask questions around, like, where is my grandpa? Why, what do you mean he's not coming back? And so at that moment, because the children have new questions about it, they're going to have, like, the whole the whole proclamation of Christ has died, Christ has risen, takes on a different meaning. Interestingly, with children, one of the parables that we've found to first enter into meditation on what Christ's death and resurrection means is not actually the stories of the tomb at all, but John 12, 24, which is the story of the grain of wheat that falls to the ground and dies. So it's just one verse. But 
with children, because they're asking these questions around death and wondering what's it like and where are people gone and what do you mean Jesus is risen from the dead? What we say to them is that we know that Jesus, before he died, also had, he knew that his friends, well, he had a sense that he was going to die, that his friends were asking a lot of questions about that and worried about what that meant. And that one time when he knew they were wondering about that, he gave them a parable to help them think about this, that he said, a a grain shall fall to the ground and die, unless a grain falls to the ground and dies, it remains just a single grain. And one of the things we know is really powerful with young children is planting some grains of wheat, seeds of wheat, and then seeing how they grow. So I've spent a lot of time with children just planting a grain, having it sit under the soil for a couple days, and then taking it out when there's just the littlest bit of of green shoot and looking at slowly what happens. Where did the grain go? It's almost like, and when you finally have a full stock of wheat and you take all the grains off of the head and there's like 50 of them there, it's it's like when your uncle pulls a quarter out of his ear. They're just... Like, where did those grains of wheat come from? And how did that one grain of wheat rise in so many different grains of wheat? In fact, one time I had an eight-year-old say to me, she was pondering this deeply when we were looking at the grain of wheat. And she goes, well, what are all the grains that came from the one grain of wheat of Jesus? And I was sitting and thinking about that question, like, how am I going to answer that? And she goes, oh, I see now. It is us, the church. (laughs) Whoa. Yeah, so what they intuit from that parable is is far beyond what we first imagine. We do start to talk about, we do find that around the age of five or six is a good time to begin to introduce the stories of the discovery of Jesus's tomb being empty um, because they have a lot of questions around burial and what happens to bodies. and, And they're really interested in like, well, when was, we've been saying Christ has died, Christ has risen for forever now. When did they first discover that Christ was risen? Um, and those stories become powerful around the age of, of five or six. The planting metaphor, the seed metaphor, um, resonates. My my daughter brought home a um, snap pea plant that I think she had planted initially at, at her Montessori school, and we planted it in a larger pot. And every day she's been wanting to look at it, and she we're now just starting to see the 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 pods, the pea pods emerge, and you see the little tiny peas inside, and it's it's really a, a, a witness of this idea of new life, um, you know. Uh, but I'm wondering how do you relate it to human resurrection? It seems to me, and I think probably adults might have a hard time have a hard time with the resurrection as well um we don't see it we, it's 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 more of a tenet of faith isn't it there's a um there's a theological component to it that is sort of difficult to explain to a child and so this is complicated on many fronts of which you've noted yeah. one of which i want to say that as catholics when a grandparent dies we actually I'd say don't believe that they're resurrected yet. Right. Like what we're believing is in the resurrection of the, at the, on the last day. And around the age of six and not before then is when children first begin to have a consciousness around time. And that's when we can introduce to them the, fir- the idea of the first time of the parousia, that day that is yet to come when God will be all in all. And Jesus's resurrection 
you could say, as St. Paul does, is the first fruits of that parousia. Like in Jesus's resurrection, we are getting a glimpse of what will happen in the parousia, in the, in the quote, end of time, when God will be all in all, when time will have fulfilled its purpose. But right now, we just get glimpses of that. And so when persons um, with Jesus, we can say, Jesus is resurrected in that. And one of the things that intrigues children a lot about the resurrection is exactly what you've noted, the bodiliness of it or the physicality of it. Because a lot of times children, and I think most adults, we tend to think about when Jesus resurrected, he came back as like a ghost. And one of the things when you read the note, when you read with children, the resurrection narratives, not just the story of the discovery of the tomb being empty, but the stories that follow that about the appearances of the resurrected Jesus one of the things that they're struck by is the physicality of it, that, that it, he wasn't just a ghost or a spirit, but that he ate things, they could touch his wounds. And the other thing, which I'll come back to in a moment, is that in the resurrection, Jesus did not look anything like he did before. Like I said, we can come back to that. So we even when a grandparent dies or someone that we love dies, we, we don't necessarily always compare that to the resurrection of Jesus, but I would tend to say with children that they, they rest in the hands of God and their spirit is alive and that what we await still is the day when we will see them face to face again and when all of us shall be resurrected and God's dream for our earth will have reached its fulfillment. But I will tend not to speak about those who have died right now is being resurrected. The only one that I actually give that language to is Jesus. Mm-hmm. So with, with those with death, I will tend to speak about that they're in the hands of God. We don't know what that looks like. We know that God is good. We know that once, once we've um, been grafted into some key images with children of the true vine, or once we've received the baptismal light, that light is stronger than death and can never be extinguished but I tend not to just use the language of resurrection with those of us who have died. What I do say with children though, around that question of that they couldn't recognize him is I think this is a really important part for children. Cause what they also want is to know, well, why can't I see Jesus anymore? Also, not just those who have died, but I get that question all the time. From my yeah. Family. Yeah. And so what I tend to talk about with children and I don't know, your daughter, well, she's a bright one, right? I mean, at five, she's, she's probably already asking some of these questions that oftentimes children begin to ask around six to nine. Um, is that those, those, those appearances that the disciples had of Jesus, they were an in-between time when Jesus was preparing his closest friends to recognize that he would continue to be with them even when they wouldn't be able to see him anymore. And so one of the ways, for example, that when he was with them, and they love the story of Emmaus, is that it's like when, when they were eating with him, they had done so much eating with him during when Jesus walked the face of the earth, that after he was resurrected, when the bread was broken, all of a sudden they recognized this is an action that we've seen Jesus do all the way throughout his ministry. He is with us when bread is broken, and when the bread is broken, then the experience of being able to see Jesus fades because what Jesus is doing is to training their eyes so that they'll be able to recognize he's still with them, even if they can't see them, you see him. And he is with them in the breaking of the bread. He's with them 
within the in the laying of the hands. He's with them when wounds are touched. He's with them when their name is called. Like, and these are for us what we would call the sacramental signs. So the 40 days of the resurrection narratives is really a time when Jesus is preparing the disciples to be able to recognize, I'm still with you, even if you can't see me. And that for us, the sacramental life, which children are often preparing for around the ages of six to nine, they also, what we're training them is like, he is still with us. Even if we don't see him in that, in that form, like the disciples did when he walked around and preached with them and ate with them, but he's still with us because those same gestures, those same signs are being done even up till today. And when we do those gestures and those signs with each other, we know he's still with us. As a catechist and catechist of the Good Shepherd, do you ever find that young children, that they, that you get the sense that they already have any kind of preformed image of God, perhaps in, influenced already by their parents? Or do you find that they're more of a kind of a blank slate and don't have any particular image? That's a great question. I think I don't know if they have preformed images of God. What I could say is that there are certain images that when we've tested them with children and listened to children speak about their experiences of God, there are particular images that they connect with in a very powerful way and different images at different times. So for the littlest child, maybe even pre-verbal, we think that the earliest image that they naturally have of God is of light. And this might be because when they emerge from the womb for the very first time, that what you're overwhelmed with is a sense of light. And also that the littlest, littlest ones can't see color yet, right? Until several weeks in. So their experience of the world is still in black and white and light is particularly powerful. So they do have connections with God around light which is really interesting because you look at our Easter vigil, how do we first proclaim the resurrection is by lighting a candle in the darkness and say that this, the light has, you know, shown in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. So that is their, their primordial image of God. I want to say by the age of two and a half to three, and we've explored this with children across cultures around the globe. There is a particular way in which they fall in love with the image of Jesus as the good shepherd. And even when I've heard children talk about this mystery of resurrection, there was a little girl, Grace, who's now a young adult, but when she was, she, we were doing the, we were doing the parable of the good shepherd and what, what they, what draws them so close to that is the idea that he is always with his sheep. He never leaves his sheep. He loves being with his sheep and the relational image of that. And then he knows each of them by name. And Grace, when she was about five or so, we did a part of that parable, you know, where the wolf appears and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And it was this idea of he loved his sheep so much. He would never abandon them to the wolf. But then the following week when we were doing the story of the empty tomb and we proclaimed the resurrection, like this tomb was found empty. Grace goes, she goes, well, of course. And I was like, of course, you know, because resurrection is not like an everyday occurrence. And, and, she, and she goes, well, of course, the good shepherd loves his sheep so much. She couldn't stand to be away from them. Mm. And the sense that it was not Jesus not only died for us, but that he lived for us, like he rose for us. And then like several weeks later, we were talking about Eucharist. And there's a particular presentation we do with this. And, the, and Grace goes, again, I was 
us doing this? And she goes, of course. And I was like, of course. And she goes with Eucharist also, she said, the good shepherd loves his sheep so much. She couldn't stay away from us. Mm. And so that image of the good shepherd of the presence, the abiding presence of the good shepherd, that is really powerful with children beginning around the age of three. And it's never lost. It's not like light or the good shepherd is lost. But then we also know that around the age of six, again, this new developmental period, there is another image of Jesus that they absolutely love, which is Jesus as the true vine. And the idea that our relationship with Christ is such that we are kind of like that eight-year-old intuited, we are his body. If you cut off all the branches of a vine, there's not much left, right? That we are the branches and he is the vine and that we are intimately united with him, even more intimate than a shepherd carries around a sheep. We are branches of the vine. We are the body of Christ in the world today. And that if, if Christ's presence is to continue to live in the world today, it will be through our hands and through our feet, like Teresa of Avila says. And that image is one that becomes very, very powerful and lasting with children. It seems that these metaphors are um, almost sort of a, I don't want to say optimal way maybe of, of conveying these truths to children, almost more so than just reading Bible stories. And I say that because we have a children's Bible and we'll read through different stories. And there I gotta admit, like I was reading the Good Friday story, the Passion to to my daughter, and there was a lot of language about God literally abandoning Jesus and God's wrath being satisfied. And and I am like, I'm gonna skip that part. I'm not gonna read that part because <laughs> That doesn't really align with the way my own image of God um, and how I understand the passion. So sometimes I guess I guess what I'm like asking is or, or commenting on at least is is here we have sort of this religious world for children with children's Bibles and children's programming, which may come from a certain a certain theology. And then we have sort of the simplicity of just these metaphors where it gives room for the child to discover who God is rather than here we are imposing a particular theology or or interpretation through a publisher or a you know a, yeah. yeah. I think, I mean, you might know by now, but I'm not a big fan of children's Bibles exactly because of the reason that you've, you've illuminated and both because I think they try to give, I I think they try to answer questions children aren't asking yet. And they give a slanted view of it or a pre-interpreted view of it. Mm -hmm. And in part, because I believe that children have the capacity to read the word of God, to hear the word of God and actually come to the, I think the word of God has a power on its own that our interpretation of it, our interpretations are fine, but I mean, like, I think the word of God actually has a power that I want to put them in primary contact with. The question is, I'm not going to read the whole real Bible with them at the age of three, right? What we've discovered, for example, with the story of the crucifixion and Jesus's death is that that story begins to make sense and it's relevant to children and they're ready for it around the age of nine. 
So it's not that I'm hiding from them that Jesus died or even that Jesus was crucified. I mean, from the age of three, I've already introduced them to the sign of the cross. And I've said over and over, Christ has died, Christ has risen. But talking about the specifics of that, we have found it's good to wait until the age of around nine, um, because it most they're ready for it at that. They tend to be ready for it around that age. And sometimes I think it's so hard for us it's just so hard not to give them every, we want, we want them to have all of it all at once. And that to give each gift at the moment in time when they're ready for it, mm. it's, it's hard to figure out when that is always too, isn't it? Yeah. Have you come across a, a, a good children's religious book? There is one children's Bible. I, if I was to give a children's Bible that I do kind of like, because what it does is it focuses a little bit more on giving some of the cultural and historical detail behind the story. Like it will have pictures from Israel mm. and also uh, it has multicultural images of Jesus. I think as you were talking about where our images of God formed are from very, very early on, many of us grew up seeing an image of Jesus that really wasn't Jewish, right? Or not Middle Eastern. And that shapes our consciousness and I think has long lasting effects into our adulthood. So I tend to only give images of Jesus that are like Middle Eastern and then with little ones, and then also have them just say, what do you think Jesus looked like? Or how would you draw this? Rather than giving a lot of pictures in the Bible. So the one I like about Bible is that it doesn't really have pictures of Jesus in it so much as it has like pictures of homes in the land where Jesus lived or pictures of what, you know, flocks look like or Mm -hmm. the temple would all look like, like that kind of stuff. Because we do know that, especially beginning at the age of six, children are really interested in historical and cultural detail. Mm -hmm. They get really fascinated Mm -hmm. by that kind of stuff. How did you navigate these, or did you have these these questions as as a mother with your son? I feel like God was particularly kind to me in that I would not naturally have had very good intuitions about small children. I was a high school teacher before I had, mm. before I had any children, and I was never drawn to working with small children at all until I had one. And then I realized, like. I have really great ways as a high school teacher. I had really great ways of unteaching notions about God, but I had no idea about what I would want to say for the very first time that I would never have to unsay. And when I had my own son, I was just overwhelmed with the desire to never tell him anything that I would have to take back. Mm. And so I only wanted to say things I really believed were true And I didn't know how to do that. And that was, when I say God was particularly good to me, that was the moment in time when I got introduced to Montessori and this catechesis, the Good Shepherd movement, and began to discover things which I would never, ever have figured out on my own. I just would never, never have intuited stuff. But then when somebody pointed out to me and I began to work and I was like, oh, that's true. Um, So I was lucky. I, I encountered that when Micah, my son, was one. Does that mean that it's been a smooth journey all the way through? No, it doesn't. I mean, all of us are always find ourselves as a sh- a, in a shortage of language around these things and find that children ask us really, really hard questions. And the gift of that is for a, us as adults, it makes us actually question like, 
what do I mean by that? Mm-hmm. And I would say Micah's questions to this day, he's now 27, but Micah's questions to this day continue to drive me to study. Like it'll continue to drive me to keep refining, like, what do I actually mean by that? What does the church mean when it proclaims that? And that's the great gift of being with children. And it continues to drive me back into the scripture and say, what is it that we actually are proclaiming there? But do I, do I feel like I did it all right? And that all of his questions were answered? No, I don't. So the other part of it is it keeps put as me as a parent keeps making me put him into the hands of God and say, God, ultimately, this is your revelation and your truth that you're trying to pass on. And you're going to have to make this clear because I can't do it. <laughs> it's like you're, he's in hands bigger than my own, right? Like I entrust him to your hands and that the two of you, ultimately all these stories should lead us to prayer, right? Like to lead us to an encounter with God. Yeah. And hopefully what he's been brought up with has led him into a space where he can continue to wrestle with the truth of this himself. Now you just came out with um, your new book, Preaching with Children, and you teach homiletics. And was it Catechesis of the Good Shepherd that that brought homiletics and children together? How did that For kind me. of meld? I did get involved in Catechesis of the Good Shepherd right when I started my MDiv studies, just by coincidence, like those two things lined up. And when I was doing my studies, I knew that I... I was going through my studies and I realized that I was coming to the end of my degree and only, I was like, or I was three fourths of the way through my degree and only one fourth of my questions had been answered. So I knew that I needed to go on for further studies for myself. Like I had more that I wanted to research and I was trying to figure out what area of theology I wanted to go further into. And I love all of them. Like I love systematics. I love scripture. I love this. But when I was doing my final internship for my MDiv, we had to do preaching because I was going to a school that that was part of the core prayers and the school was preaching. And I went in the act of preaching. I thought it was in the act of preaching that all of these things come together and they actually serve the, the word serves the church in the act of preaching. And I realized that what I had been learning to do in the atrium and what I was learning to do in the pulpit, that they were talking to each other in a very profound way. So the first time when I tried to write on that topic, I did it for my doctoral dissertation. I actually wrote on what do children have to teach us about what makes good preaching. Um, and I wrote, but then what ended up happening was I realized that most people were turning to it, not with the idea of what do we have to learn from children, but how do we preach to children? And so finally, because that was a significant pastoral need, like a lot of priests and deacons and Lay leaders were asking, how do we preach to children? That was when I decided to rewrite it and called it Preaching to Children or Preaching with, with Children. children yeah. with, with is important to me because I want to, I see preaching also as a liturgical act that always involves the congregation as well. I don't ever think of preaching as we're preaching to people, but we're preaching with them and we're drawing on their experiences of God and their wisdom in the world and putting that into dialogue with the word of God. And that even with children, they're not blank slates. They have already intuitions around God and a relationship with God and a wisdom from their experience that needs to be drawn on and put into conversation with the word. So this book that just came out, Preaching with Children, is kind of after 20 years after writing Mustard Seed Preaching, it was kind of what I thought, oh, I think this might be of use to preachers today. Mm. 
Can I ask you what the biggest uh, critique you've had have in homilies that you've heard over the years? One is that we try to include, there's a difference between written word and orality of speech. And so how we talk naturally with each other and how we write are two different forms of discourse. And too often, preaching is an oral is an oral form of communication. If we write everything out, and I actually, as a preacher, I don't have a great memory. I need to write. Mm-hmm. But when I write, I need to make sure I'm writing in the way that I talk. Mm-hmm. So one of the critiques is, I would say, we're using language that's too highfalutin and dense for the ear to be able to comprehend. And the other thing, because I think we're writing so much, we think of it as writing, we try to communicate too many points. And I think in each particular preaching, you really can only have one point. You can make it in a variety of different ways, but whatever you're trying to communicate in preaching should be able to be communicated. I should be able to sum up what you were saying in 30 words or less, Mm. or you've got too much that's going on in one homily. Now, the danger of that is that sometimes then what we think is we need to say really simple things. And especially when preaching with children, we tend to dumb down stuff and we say things like, be nice. Like who was wondering, was that really a dilemma that you had in your mind? We be good to your sisters and brothers. You know, like this is, we treat them like, I don't know, like they're stupid and children are capable of so much more than that. So it needs to be substantive. It needs to be a substantive point, but it, can only have one. You can only have one. I remember you saying recently a suggestion of, of saying, okay, I'm going to be, I'm going to be talking to everyone ages six through 12. And then, and then you go for it. And, but everyone, everyone receives the message, but it it seems like that's like a, a practice of keeping it to a couple of points not highfalutin, as you said, but you're able to preach to a, a wider audience. There is a mystery in the field of preaching that we think that the way to reach the widest number of people is to be the most general, to use real generic examples that everybody would be able to tap into. One of the mysteries of preaching is that we actually have the greatest impact when we get very specific. And when we try to use now preach to different segments of the population at different times, but preach to a very preach specifically to a group. And everybody will overhear into that sermon. So one of the things, and this is interesting, this is Carl Rahner, who was not known for simplicity of language, but he has a wonderful quote in which he talks about within each of us, even as adults, the child, it's not like we grow out of our childhood. There's just more and more that gets added to our experience, but the core of the child is still inside of each of us. And if you really, really want to preach, even to adults, if you preach to the child and each and every person, you'll always hit on what's most essential and what's most graspable. And um, I think preaching specifically, a lot of adults go to children's masses because they find the preaching more comprehensible <laughs> and enjoyable, right? So if you preach well to children, uh, automatically you will draw in adult hearers as well. I appreciate you said like not oversimplifying it almost it gives children dignity that they can appreciate substance and and not to dumb things down and it seems to me catechesis of the good shepherd is very much about 
conveying these deep truths and essential truths in a way that doesn't dumb it down, but respects the dignity of, of the child. Yeah, the youngest children, one of the things, the gift that they bring into the church is essentiality. Well, and this is what you're uncovering, right? When your daughter's asking you these questions, like, what do you mean that he rose from the dead? Like, what does that mean? Children bring us back to the most essential mysteries of our faith. Incarnation, the kingdom of God, and like we're talking about right now, mm-hmm. Paschal mystery, death and resurrection, baptism, Eucharist. Mm-hmm. Like, those, those are the five core things. The youngest child has tells us that's what I'm really interested in. Don't give me fluff. And I don't, I'm not interested in the peripherals. I want to really know, I want to know what's the most important stuff that's going on in this world and how it functions. And those are, that's what our traditions response is to that. And at the very core of it, Paschal mystery. Well, Ian Garrido, I could talk to you all day long and, and, and listen to you talk about the, the, the wonder and marvel of, of children and kind of what they bring to our own faith as adults. But how can people learn more about your work? Well, I will share my, my website is angarito.com. So that it's straight, pretty straightforward. The preaching with children is there. Mm-hmm. And then I've also got some articles. There is an article I wrote once for center for children and theology on reading resurrection stories with children. Well, thank you thank very you. much and happy Easter. Thank you. Happy Easter to you too. May you swim in the joy of it for all 50 days. Amen to that. Thanks for listening. Learn more about Ignatius House by visiting us at ignatiushouse.org or following us on social media. And be sure to subscribe to this wherever you listen to podcasts. May the blessing of God be with you always.